0: Today, I'm speaking with Nita Farahani. Nita is a professor of law and philosophy at Duke Law School and the author of The Battle for Your Brain, Defending Your Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Nita. Thanks for having me.
1: The Potential of Neural Interfaces
2: You don't even have to think up, down, left, right. I mean, and, and, and right now, if we have become so used to the interfaces we use, like a keyboard or a mouse, that we're used to not thinking like, I'm going to move my finger left and I'm going to move my finger right. But really what we've done is we've added friction between us and operating a device, right? Which is there's some intermediary that you have to use brain power to operate. You have to use your brain to have your finger move left and right. And just think about the time that you lose there too. But it's also unnatural, right? I mean, we've learned it, so it's become more natural, but it's not the way, like, think about right now, you know, whoever's listening can't see me, but I'm moving my hands in the way that I normally do when I'm expressing a thought. I'm not thinking move my hand up or down or left or right. It's just part of how I express uh, myself. And similarly, the idea of being able to operate a drone is you're not thinking, okay, now go left or now go right, right? You're actually, if you're looking at a screen that is the navigation, you're just navigating, right? Just like you're just intentionally navigating. And then the drones are an extension of your body. They're an extension of your mind that are navigating based on how you are naturally navigating through space. And that's the difference between neural interfaces. It's meant to be a much more natural and seamless way of interacting with the world and with other objects that become extensions of our minds rather than the more direct connection that we have right now with our body. It's forging a connection with external technology without the kinds of intermediaries that we're used to, which if you kind of step back and look at them, they're a little weird. Like it's a little weird that you move your hand around to actually try to navigate through a space or if you're in virtual reality, it's weird that you have to be using a joystick to move, right? You should just be able to think about moving naturally. Totally. Yeah, that really really
0: helped me. I don't know if this works, but another analogy I'm thinking of is like um yeah, like I've like now got muscle memory for my keyboard. I like know that the L is on the right and the A is on the left. And not only will it remove the fact that I, like, had to learn to type, but it, in theory, could also remove something like the fact that I'm used to having to translate whatever kinds of thoughts I have that are both verbal and visual into linear sentences created on a Word doc where I, like, edit in a certain way. And, I don't know, I can't backspace as quickly as I want to, or I have to, like, switch to my mouse. It's, yeah, I guess a mix of, like physical kind of hand-eye coordination and also just like something like the the way of thinking.
2: Yeah. So we've learned a way of expressing ourselves through like chokeholds, right? Right. But we have become accustomed to those chokeholds. And so it's like, as it's as if it's natural. And in many ways it is for us because that's what we've learned. That's how we've wired our brains. Neural interface imagines... A new world where rather than having the chokehold, you know, you are operating more like one with the devices that you're operating, and you're operating without the chokeholds in between. You know, there's still gonna be limitations on being able to have like a full-throttled thought expressed through another medium, right? I mean, the we have limitations of language right now, of how we communicate. And so you can hear my words, but you can't also see the visual images in my mind that go with those words you can't um, feel the feelings that I am feeling along with the words that I'm saying you can pick some of that up from you know the tenor of my voice or pieces like that but but you're not getting all of it Um, and even when you're interacting with a swarm of drones or you know there's still these limitations but I think people dream of a world in which brain-to-brain communication might enable sending across to another person a more full throttled thought than we currently have. I don't know of any technology that does that yet, right? I don't know of anything that actually like captures it. And part of it is I don't think that, I don't think anybody has figured out how to decode those multiple layers of thought from cognition to metacognition to the like full embodiment of thought. But, you know, I think it's, neat to think about that, right? Which is the the possibility of actually getting to that level of communication with one another.
1: Hacking neural interfaces.
2: There was a patient who was suffering from really severe depression to the point where uh, she described herself as being terminally ill, like she was at the end of her life. And every different kind of treatment had failed for her. And Finally, she agreed with her physicians to have electrodes implanted into her brain. And those electrodes were able to trace the specific neuronal firing patterns in her brain when she was experiencing the most severe symptoms of depression. And then we're able to, after tracing those, every time that, you know, you would have activation of those signals, basically interrupt those signals. So think of it like a pacemaker, but for the brain, where, you know, like when a signal goes wrong, it would override it and put that new signal in. Mm -hmm. And that meant that she now actually has a typical range of emotions. She has been able to overcome depression. She now lives a life worth living. That's a great story, right? That's a happy story and a happy application of this technology. But that means we're down to the point where you could trace specific, at least with implanted electrodes, neuronal firing patterns and then interrupt and disrupt those patterns. Can we do the same for other kinds of thoughts, right? Could it be that like, you know, one day we get to the point where if you're wearing EEG headsets that also have the capacity for neurostimulation, that you could pick up specific patterns of thoughts and disrupt those specific patterns of thoughts if they're hacked, right? If your device is hacked, for example, maybe, right? I mean, we're now sort of like imagining a science fiction world where this is happening, but sure. But that's sort of how I would imagine it would first happen is that like you could have either first very general stimulation like I experienced at the Royal Society meeting where suddenly I'm experiencing vertigo, right? And that's somebody could hack Mm -hmm. your device. Like I'm wearing this headset for meditation, but, you know, it's hacked and suddenly I'm experiencing vertigo and I'm disabled. You know, that's devices get hacked and we can imagine devices getting hacked and especially ones that have neurostimulation capacity. They could be hacked either in really specific patterns or they could be hacked in ways that generally could just take a person out.
1: Neural data and mental privacy.
2: What does it mean to leave your brainwave on, brainwave collection on? It means multifunctional devices, right? I mean, so the primary devices that are coming are earbuds, headphones, watches that pick up brain activity, but also let you take conference calls, listen to music. Do a podcast, right? All of those things. And so passively, it's collecting brainwave activity while you use it in every other way. People are used to multifunctional watches. They're used to rings. They're used to all of these devices. It is another form of quantification of brain activity. And then what does it mean? Okay, so um, you do it to unlock your app on your phone, right? Now you're interacting with an app on your phone. um, And how you react to the advertisement that just popped up, right? Are you engaged? Is your mind wandering? Did you experience pleasure, interest, curiosity? Did you, uh, like, what your actual reaction to everything is? A political message ad pops up on your phone. Did you react in disgust? Did you react in curiosity and interest, right? I mean, these are all the kinds of things that can start to be picked up and, It's your reaction to both explicit content and also subliminally primed in many ways or unconsciously primed content, all of which can be captured, right?
0: Yeah, I find myself like drawn to the benefits, but also I'm not the kind of person who's super privacy oriented. And I can easily see myself being like, eh, who cares if they know my reaction to a song? I feel fine about that. But then I guess, yeah, I can just really easily imagine the slippery slope where um, the technology keeps getting better and better and um, it picks up more complex thoughts. And also, I'm not even kind of correctly thinking about all the ways this data could be used. I'm probably imagining these kind of benign cases, but actually uh, there are probably a hundred different uses that I'm not even thinking of. And some of them might actually bother me. Um, Some of them might be totally fine.
2: Sure, sure. Right? And some people, and you're right, which is a lot of people are not that worried about their privacy in general. And so they may react to this and say like, oh, that's fine. Like maybe I'm just going to get much better advertisement. And that's okay if people choose that. If they're okay with giving up their mental privacy, that's fine. I'm fine with people making choices that are informed choices and deciding to do whatever they will do. I would guess there is a lot more going on in your mind than you think that uh, you want other people to know. And, you know, I, I would just ask you, like, do you ever tell a little white lie? Do you ever tell a friend that, like, you like their couch when you walk in? Yes. Right? Or um, if you have a partner, do you ever, like, you know, tell them that their new shirt looks great? Or, uh, like, no, you can't tell about that giant zit on your forehead. You, I mean, you look terrific, right? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of things that are like that or your instant reaction to something is discussed, but you have a higher order kind of way of thinking about it. Or less benignly, you harbor some uh, biases that you're trying to work on, right? And you kind of realize you grew up with sort of some ingrained societal and structural biases, and you're working on that. And so your kind of instant reaction to somebody with a different color skin or a different hair style, or a different, you know, whatever, like pick your bias is one that you're not proud of and you work, you know, you, you recognize it, you sense it in yourself because that's something you're working on and your higher order cognitive processing kicks in and you think, no, like that is not me. That is not who I want to be, but your brain would reveal it, right? Or You're figuring out your sexual orientation, you're figuring out your gender identity when you're much younger, and your reaction to advertisements or your reaction to stimuli around you gives you away well before you're ready to share that with the world. There's a lot of that, right? And maybe you don't have it in your life, but you might, you might have some of that in your life. Yeah, I'm sure I do. It's hard to imagine that world is just what I would say, right? It's hard to like, because we're so used to all of the rest of our private information that we like in some ways intentionally express or like, yeah, I drove there. So you picked it up on my GPS or I typed that, but like I intentionally typed it, right? There's a lot of filtering that you're doing that you're just not even, I think, fully aware of. And just imagine the filter being gone, right? Filter's gone. All of it can be picked up and decoded by other people. And we haven't even gotten to, like, manipulating your brain based on what it is that people learn about you, right? This is just the passive decoding of information.
1: Will neurodata be used to convict criminals the way Fitbit data is?
2: So... The Fitbit cases are passive collection of data, right? And and that's um, meaning like you have your uh, Fitbit on and it's tracking your you know movements and activities, uh, and you're not consciously like creating the information. And then later, the police subpoena that information and use it at, you know to kind of confirm or you know to try to show that you're not you weren't doing what you said you were doing at the time. With brain data. It's a little bit different for the context in the UAE, which is it's been used as a tool of interrogation. So instead of passive creation of data, you know, a person's hauled into the like law enforcement, into the police station, and then they are required to put on a headset, like an EEG headset. So, um, again, these headsets can be like earbuds or headphones, right? But just imagine like a, a cap that has dry electrodes that are picking up people's brainwave activities, And then they're shown a series of images or read a series of prompts, um, and the law enforcement are looking for what are called evoked response potentials. So they're looking for automatic reactions in the brain. And here, what they're looking for is recognition. So, you know, you say a terrorist name that the person shouldn't know, right? There's no context in which they should know it, and they recognize it. Their brain shows recognition memory. Or you show them crime scene details, and their brain shows recognition memory. And in the UAE, it's been used, apparently, to obtain murder convictions by doing this. Similar technology has been used for years in India, and there's been, like, a really interesting set of legal challenges to the constitutionality of doing that in India. But, you know, in countries around the world, this technology apparently has already been used in a number of cases to obtain criminal convictions. So um, I have not gotten a verification of this other case yet, but MIT Tech Review reported on this and I reached out to the woman who made the comment about it at a conference. So apparently a, a patient who suffers from epilepsy has implanted electrodes uh, in their brain. And this is not uncommon with some conditions like this that can either be used to control the epileptic seizures or detect them earlier, something like that. So this person had implanted electrodes. And I say that just because the data is being captured regularly all the time, right? If you have implanted electrodes, it's passively always collecting brain data. right? And I think the person was accused of a crime And they sought their brain data from the company, so the defendant themselves rather than the government in this case, to try to show that they were having an epileptic seizure at the time, not that they were like violently assaulting somebody. And that would be the first case uh, of its kind if that turns out to be true. And, you know, really, it's just like the Fitbit data, right? Where people would say like, okay, you know, uh, Google provide my Fitbit data because I want to show I was actually asleep at the time, um, not that I was, you know, moving around and I couldn't have killed somebody because, you know, I was asleep at the time or, you know, my pattern and alibi fits with what the data shows, you know, the brain data is going to be a lot more compelling than the Fitbit data in those instances. And <laughs> right, just like the person can ask for the data, so too can the government then subpoena from another, you know, a third party, the person who actually operates the device, that data as
1: well. How companies might use neural data in the workplace.
2: I wrote the scenario, a couple of scenarios in the in the book, right? Most of it is grounded in like, here's exactly what's happening today. But I wanted to help people understand like how, no matter what their frame of reference is, why it would be problematic. And so, you know, I wanted to try to help people who are who really strongly believe in freedom of contract in the workplace, right? So kind of the staunchest libertarian who thinks, okay, but the market will take care of itself. Why, in a context like this, the market can't just take care of itself. And the kind of scenario that I painted in the book for that was, imagine this, you've got your employee who's wearing these earbuds to take their conference calls, do everything else, right? And there's asymmetry in information. That is, the employer can see what the person's brain is doing at any given time. But of course, the employee can't see what the employer's brain is doing at any given time. And so the employer calls the employee up and says like, hey, uh, wanted to let you know that you did great last quarter. And so you're gonna get a raise and I'm delighted to let you know that you're gonna get a 2% raise in salary. And the employee, their brain data shows that they are just thrilled. Like, they're just like so happy, like, hooray, I'm getting a 2% raise. But they know better than to say, uh, oh, hooray. And, and they know that that would give away their negotiating position right away. So they say, oh, you know, thanks so much. I um, I was actually hoping for a bigger raise. I was really hoping for 10%. And while that's happening they're afraid, right? And you register that in the brainwave activity. And, you know, the employer says, okay, well, I'm going to think about it and I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. And then they go and they look at the brain data and they see the person was overjoyed when they got the 2%. They're super fearful when they offer the 10%. And they have this additional asymmetry of knowledge, which really frustrates freedom of contract. And so it turns out the employer can easily handle the twenty, the 10%. Like they've got the funds, their revenue really went up the last quarter. They could have easily done it. But they have this information, they come back the next day and they say, so sorry, we can only afford 2%. And the person feels relieved, but still content. And the employer walks away having gained a significant advantage from what the brain data revealed. And that is to just help people understand that every conversation, right, your reaction to every piece of information can suddenly be gleaned. It's not just whether you're paying attention or your mind is wandering it is your reaction to company-level policy as it's flashed up and how you actually feel about it. It is working with other people in the company where your brain starts to synchronize with theirs because when people are working together, you start to see brainwave synchrony between them. And maybe you guys are planning for collective action you know, to unionize against the company, but you see a bunch of brain waves that are synchronizing in ways that they shouldn't, and you're able to triangulate that with all of the other information that you're surveilling them on and, and you prevent them from doing so. So these are some of the dystopian things that my brain goes to.
1: The risks of getting really deep into someone's brain.
2: The more people who have brain-computer interface technology implanted neurotechnology, the more that they need to have a better sense of like, Where am I, and where do I end, and where does the technology begin, and how do I understand the interrelationship between me and the technology? I was talking to a researcher scientist recently who does a lot of work in deep brain stimulation, and she was talking with me about her hearing loss, and how she has started to wear hearing aids, and that that's required her to sort of re-establish her sense of self in the world, because her concept of hearing is fundamentally changed, And so even just trying to understand like what circumstances can she be in? What is she going to hear? How is she going to react? It's like required an updating of self and the sounds and input that she's getting are different than ordinary hearing that she had in the past. And we were talking about that in relationship to deep brain stimulation, where she sees patients who are suffering from, you know, intractable depression. They then have an implanted device Um, And it takes about a year before they start to develop a sense of like, this is me, and that's the technology, and here's where I end, and here's where the technology begins, and here's me plus technology, like this new concept of self. And I think that idea, like we, we have to get to this place, whether it's with implanted neurotechnology or wearable neurotechnology or just me and my mobile device, to start to update human thinking about us in relationship to our technology and our concept of self as a relational self. Right, right. I can imagine it really hitting on
0: questions of identity. Um, yeah. I guess there are, um, the examples you're giving are of kind of regaining some types of function or having access
2: to some kinds of emotions. But it changes, it changes self, right? And and I mean, and we talked earlier about hacking, right? I mean, we could get into like the dark side of all of this, but before we even do that, right, the rest... It is how do people understand themselves? And you know, one thing people have worried about a lot with these technologies is like a discontinuity of self. Like there's you, and then there's you after the implant, and maybe you after the implant is a fundamentally different person, or maybe accidentally, you know, it in the surgery parts of like the empathetic you got damaged, and suddenly you are, you know, a violent killer or something like that. I mean, there's there's all those kinds of things that that might emerge. But I think probably the most fundamental is that people have really grappled on is like, how do you get informed consent truly for somebody to understand what does it mean to be a different person in relation to a technology that is implanted in your brain before and after? And how do you think about that future self and make decisions that are truly informed when you can't have any idea of what that actually is like?
0: Right. What that future self will experience, what their life will be like. How do you know if you
2: want to become them. But I mean, but then there's all kinds of risks of hacking and, you know, Manchurian candidates and all kinds of things like that. But I mean, I think the more ordinary everyday challenges are are the broader conceptions around self. Yeah.
0: Out of curiosity, can you take me into the dark side? Uh, what are some of those less likely, but maybe scarier risks?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to go there. Although I'll say this, which is Again, I treat, I mean, so so I do a lot on the ethics of neurotechnology, and I am far more concerned from an ethical perspective about wide-scale consumer-based neurotechnology than I am about implanted neurotechnology. And the reasons that that are true are both a very different risk-benefit calculus for the people who are currently part of the population who would receive implanted neurotechnology, but also because it's happening in a really tightly regulated space as opposed to consumer technology where there's almost no regulations and it's just the Wild West. But in the dystopian world and with all of those caveats, which I think are really important, you know, I think it's still possible without really good cybersecurity measures that, you know, there's a backdoor into the chips, right? That there's like that some bad actor could gain access to implanted electrodes in a person's brain. And if they're both read and write devices, right, not just uh, interrupting a person's mental privacy, but have the capacity of stimulating the brain and changing how a person behaves, there's no way we would really even know that's happening, right? When something is sort of invisibly happening in a person's brain that changes their behavior, how do you have any idea that that's happening because somebody is hacked into their device versus That's, you know, coming from their will or their intentionality. And we have to understand people's relationship to their technology and we have to be able to somehow observe like something has happened to this person, which would lead us to be able to investigate that something has happened to their device and somebody has gained access to it or interference with it or something like that. You know, we're dealing with such small, tiny patient populations. It's not like the president of the United States has implanted neurotechnology where, you know, some foreign actor is going to say, like, it's worth it to hack into their device and turn them into the Manchurian candidate. But in the imagined sci-fi world of what could go wrong, what could go wrong if this goes to scale and if Elon Musk really does get a brain-computer interface device into every one of our brains, is that we would have almost no idea that they had been hacked that the person had been hacked and that their behavior is not their own.